As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tribune Audio Network. When you're 16 years old, 14 years old, mm-hmm. and you've got a bunch of 40-something-year-old adults screaming in your ear with F-bombs and telling you you're all wrong, for what, maybe 20 bucks a game? From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. We're investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On this episode, physical violence and verbal abuse, the unsportsmanlike conduct against youth referees and what's being done to keep them. Hello, everyone. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire here with Jenna Sachs. Hi. And Brian Polson. Hello. So it's that time of year, signing kids up for sports. Things are kind of getting back into swing. I know that's been a topic of conversation around the office, Brian and Jenna, for both of you. I just signed my daughter up for three-year-old soccer. <laughs> so oh, that's that, going to be entertaining, right? Absolutely. I can't wait to see that. That's just the horde going around Yeah, it's not really yeah. soccer. It's just a group of kids chasing a ball in a mob. Well, and the best part is that the parents sit on the side. And we watch. <laughs> oh, as opposed to playing? Is that yeah, what Yeah, we don't have here? to go out there. Yeah, no, that's we true. We can just sit back and, and watch. Well, so at three, excited. though, you might find yourself out on the field a couple of times. Oh, don't say that. I, I still remember when, when my son, he is now 11, and I'm, uh, I've been coaching or assistant coaching his team for years now. But when he was in what they called short stuff soccer um, in Port Washington, and I still remember this because he's a happy-go-lucky kid. He's not very competitive. He's athletic, but he doesn't really care if he's winning a game. He just wants to be out there playing. And there was a little girl on the field, and they were talking and having fun, and they would just run around the field holding hands. <laughs> and if That's she adorable. fell down, he would help her up. He wasn't paying any attention to the ball. <laughs> And I remember watching that and thinking, I mean, I was happy. I was proud of him, but I didn't figure he was going to get a scholarship. It's already distracted by a girl. Already. Like father, like son. <laughs> oh, my God. That's ridiculous. You haven't oh, made a case you told yet. You are horrible. You are ridiculous. What is happening? Hundreds of thousands of Wisconsin children play sports, but the pool of referees and umpires needed to officiate their games is dwindling. And a national organization based in Wisconsin says the number one reason is abuse, mostly verbal, but sometimes physical. That's right. The National Association of Sports Officials, NASO. I didn't even realize they were right here in Racine all along. Uh, But this national association says verbal abuse and harassment is especially troubling for young referees who are new to the game, and that's making it harder to not only recruit, but to retain them. There's not enough warm bodies to fulfill the assignments that we have. We have a major referee shortage, and why wouldn't we? These people treat these young officials like they are trash. 
So that is Barry Mano and Brian Barlow. Now, Mano is the founder of the National Association of Sports Officials in Racine, and Barlow is the administrator of a Facebook page called Offside, which pays $100 or more for videos of bad behavior at youth sporting events. Both of these men are trying to raise awareness of this growing problem in youth sports, and they both say the number one culprit is not the players or even their coaches. Sometimes it's their coaches, but the number one problem, they both say, is parents. It's disappointing to me that we even have to talk about this, because how upsetting is it that these kids are watching their parents berate a 17-year-old referee? I mean, what a terrible example. I mean, that's my little rant. But the fact that these parents are the problem and not the kids is what makes this story most upsetting, I think. Well, and I've been around youth sports for a long time. I played them when I was little, and now, of course, I have kids who are doing it. And and you see it. It's not like it's every game you go to. I think most parents, by and large, are well-behaved at their kids' sporting events. But it's just far too often that you hear that one parent who's berating the official or berating the players who are out on the field, these young kids who are just trying their best, and you've got that one parent out there who thinks this is the road to the NFL or or Major League Baseball or, or something like and that. And usually it isn't. And it's usually not. And, and I think even as other parents, oftentimes we don't know what to do because we're sort of embarrassed by the behavior, or, or but no one wants to speak up and say anything about it. And unfortunately, I've seen some of the parents who do that. They're the first to say, oh, yeah, the other parents are crazy. Like, it's almost there's a lack of self-awareness that goes on with that. But I'm curious, Brian, because youth sports aren't new. Parenthood isn't new. So why is this an issue now? Well, I think what's changed is obviously technology, video, cell phones, we're seeing so much more of this now. And there's there, you, you can probably factor in some other psychological things. You know, maybe there's just more of a sense of that, you know, the drive for competition and winning. But I think the biggest thing really is just the ubiquitousness of cell phones. Is that did I just try to say that word ubiquitousness? I'm impressed. That's I, I realized as I was saying it, this is ridiculous. Don't even try the word. But hey, you cell phones are everywhere. Up. Cell phones are everywhere. And so people are capturing more of this. And what actually prompted this story uh, to be for me to do the story now was we had a string of incidents here in Wisconsin that kept making the daily news. And one of them was a wrestling tournament in Kimberly, Wisconsin, where it wasn't the officials who were the target, but it was just bad behavior by parents. These were parents whose little kids are wrestling and they got into it with each other and they start they start wrestling and, and you know throwing fists and it all ends up caught on camera. The video goes viral and everybody's talking about it. A short time after that, Green Bay Packers, former Green Bay Packers coach Mike McCarthy, you might remember he was uh, verbally assaulting an official after his son's basketball game and there was video of him going after the official, following him toward the locker room. And then the third one not long after that was a soccer referee in Brookfield getting punched in the face. That, too, was caught on video. So it's one thing to talk about these things, but when those videos start to go viral, everybody sees it, and I think that's becoming more and more common. There's so many of these videos out there that's raising attention to an issue that's always been there. And maybe normalizing the behavior. Well, it could be that. It could also, though, I I think there's some shaming to this. There's this sort of shame factor. And and that's what Brian Barlow's role was in on this. He's an Oklahoma soccer referee who was fed up, and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to just put videos out there when I see them. I'm going to encourage people to send them in. And he said his goal in that was not necessarily 
well, he does want to shame the people who are behaving that way, but he said what he was hoping would come of this is that as people see the financial incentive that, hey, I could get my video picked up by this offside page, what it will do is it will have people self-policing. If you're at your kid's sporting event and you see someone spouting off and you pull out your cell phone camera and you point it at them, they're going to see that and realize, oh, there's a video being made of me right now and hopefully it will make them aware of their own behavior and get them to sort of calm down. At least that's what he says is sort of the end goal in all of this. What made your story really powerful was that compilation of videos. And I mean, you see people using the F word at a kid's game. And what struck me was it wasn't, not that it's ever excusable, but it wasn't, you know, the high stakes game where, you know, you think Betsy's going to get a scholarship and this could ruin her chances of getting a scholarship or maybe, okay, you can rationalize some, not all the behavior, but these were little kids who were playing. So as you were looking through it, did you find that most of it was with those younger kids? Because that's what we saw in the videos in the story. I think there's a variety. You're going to see it in the intense competitions where it's maybe it's a select soccer team and it's a championship game and there's a lot on the line. But what I think was so surprising is how often this is happening at rec sporting events or Little League baseball games where there's absolutely nothing on the line other than kids out playing a game that doesn't really count for much of anything. There's no standings to worry about. There's no championship. It's just a rec game. And what you have is parents who they're passionate about their kid. And so they speak up and start to, you know, berate the official. What I think happens at these maybe lower level or younger games is you've got less experienced officials. So they are going to make mistakes. And you have maybe parents who think they know the game better or they just want to get their point of view across. So when I asked Barry Mano about that, he said, and, and again, he is the head of this officiating organization. So he and the people he works around, they have a lot more experience at this than me. And he, I asked him that question, where is it the worst? And he said, oh, it's the young ones, the rec teams, way worse. And I asked him why. And he said it is the lack of experience on the part of the officials. And oftentimes it's parents. He actually said it was different from what I just said a minute ago. He said it's parents who don't know the game. They don't mm. know the rules. But, and think they know the but they think they do. They think they know what should be called and what shouldn't be. And he said uh, oftentimes that's where they're losing young officials who are just learning the game themselves. They're already self-conscious about what they're doing. Maybe they have, they're still trying to learn assertiveness. And to be a good official, you've got to be assertive. You've got to be decisive. But when, you, when you're 16 years old or 14 years old mm -hmm. and you've got a bunch of 40-something-year-old adults screaming in your ear with F-bombs and telling you you're all wrong – for what, maybe 20 bucks a game? At a certain point, you go, you know what, maybe I'm just going to go work at McDonald's. So Ohio's trying to address this through legislation. What's going on here in Wisconsin? Well, and it, we featured in the story that Ohio is currently working on that, and I'm not sure the status of that bill now, but National Association of Sports Officials actually has model legislation, or they've supported legislation in, I think, 20-something states. And what really caught my eye was this is an organization that represents sports officials right here in Wisconsin – it's a national organization, and yet Wisconsin doesn't have any kind of legislation to protect these officials. And what would the legislation do to protect them? Well, there, there's a, a number of different things they've tried to do, and, and some have to do with liability for sports officials. But the, the one that really I think is of most interest probably generally to the public is when there's something that rises beyond verbal abuse. Because it's easy to criticize the verbal abuse, and it should be criticized, and it should be called out. 
But what was really, I think, alarming to me in researching this was how often this leads to physical assault. Sure. NASO did a survey of more than 17,000 sports officials last year. And uh, in in all sorts of sports, everything from softball, football, baseball, soccer, lacrosse, ice hockey, anything you can think of. And they they surveyed all of these officials. It's the most comprehensive survey done of officiating, they say, ever. And I don't know that anyone's challenged that. But in looking through that data, they found 13% of sports officials say they have feared for their safety. I'm sorry, 13% they've been physically, say they've been physically assaulted during or after a game. That's roughly one out of seven, one out of eight sports that's officials a lot. have been physically assaulted after a game. I think that's crazy. Um, and in some cases, that physical assault might be very minor. It might be chest bumping. It might be a, a finger in the chest. But in some cases, it's actually getting very serious. People are being seriously injured, in some cases, tragically killed, a punch to the face after a game uh, from an angry player. So they are supporting legislation to create what they call a protected class around sports officials to elevate the offense. If you assault a sports official, they want it to be a higher level offense than if you just assault another person generally on the street. And and there are other states that have passed that kind of legislation. Ohio's one where they are currently considering it. But so far in Wisconsin, there hasn't been anything introduced, at least not in recent years, that would elevate an assault against a sports official to a higher level offense. We should have had Fox 6 anchor Ben Handelman in, in on this conversation because he's a ref himself. himself. Is anything being done to attract new recruits or motivate people to become referees in spite of this behavior? Well, and th- there are certainly a number of things that they're trying to do to attract new people, and different sports have their own avenues. We interviewed the Wisconsin Youth Soccer Association, um, which is doing certain things with its own training programs, but some local high schools are now adding officiating classes to try to get kids who are interested in athletics trained to become officials as well. Because it's going to be the athletes who are going to be the ones who are going to know the game and maybe want to make a little money on the side. You don't get paid to play soccer or football unless you get to a much higher level. But if you know the game and you're good at it, you can get paid on the side or on the weekends to go umpire baseball games or to referee soccer games. And we met one student in one of our stories who said, He hadn't really thought about it until one of his coaches said, hey, you ought to look at this. And now he's making pretty good money on a given weekend. He might umpire a couple of baseball games and get 50 bucks. He might go referee a soccer game and make 20 or 30 dollars for an hour's work. And to him, he said, at my age, that's great money. But even he said he was already experiencing adults who were mouthing off to him or getting in his face because of a call they disagreed with and, and You think about it, he's 16, 17 years old now. How long is he going to put up with that? So in addition to recruiting, one of the things they're really trying to do is how do we deal with the behavior early on and and make sure that the word's being spread that this isn't acceptable. And I I know in my son's league, I I am an assistant coach in the Port Washington Soccer Club for a U-12 soccer team. And they make it clear at the beginning of every year there is zero tolerance for fans berating officials, criticizing officials, and it's on the coach to take care of my fans. If my fans are out of line, I've got to bring them in line. Hmm. And just this year, Wisconsin Youth Soccer Association, I'm sorry, U.S. Soccer has introduced something brand new. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And I'm not sure at what age level this begins. But they've introduced uh, the ability to issue cards, yellow and red cards, to the coaches. 
Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you've always been able as a referee to yellow card a player for a dirty foul or a, a hard foul, red card them for a dissent against the official or, or a string of, of, of hard fouls or something like that. Now they can yellow or red card the coach. And the procedure, the way this is supposed to work, as it's been explained to me, it's not just the coach who's responsible for his own behavior, but again, for the fans. So if there's a fan who's out of control, that official can come up to the coach and say, okay, you're getting a warning. This person needs to be brought under control. The next step is, okay, you haven't brought it under control. I'm giving you a yellow card. And one more outburst like this, and and it's going to be a red card, and, and somebody's going to have to be ejected from the field. Well, and it just goes to show this isn't just a story about, oh, the poor referees or that affects the referees. This really affects everyone because if there aren't people available who want to coach or referee because of out-of-control fans, your kids don't get to play sports. And that's a large percentage of the population. It's also just affects as a society how we teach kids what's acceptable, what's not, and how we do self-police. There's, so, there's nothing, I can say this as a lifelong soccer player, there is nothing more disappointing than showing up to a game you've paid to play in and no referee shows up. And you've just got to play sort of a scrimmage. As much as people love to complain about the officials, oh, they don't know the game or he made the wrong call – the game's a lot less fun to play when there's not an official there. Little league without an umpire. It's no fun. You want we need to have sports officials and so you need to have people who are willing to come out and do this job and if we don't self-police the people who are around us and the way they're behaving at games and we lose these officials, it's it's us and it's our kids who lose out on this. And learning how to part of the game is learning how to move forward even when you disagree with a call or when you're disappointed about what's happening because it's the mental component of the game. So, you know, if everyone's free to do whatever they want at the expense of the referee, then our kids are missing out on really important life lessons. I, 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 I don't mean to jump on you there, Jenna, but I know some people have uh, pointed out that maybe this is sort of going soft. You know, hey, people have been yelling at officials for generations. And I'm hardly a person who wants to be soft when it comes to things like that. But I think there is there is uh, an acceptable level of criticism. You can groan in the stands if you didn't think that should have been a strike call. But when you start getting loud, vulgar, personal, um, profane, or even threatening, there's just absolutely no question there's a line that should be drawn on and that kind of stuff. being kind is not being soft. There's strength that comes from kindness. So I think that's a mistake if we try to teach people that having good manners and being kind and having restraint is going soft. And maybe we can wrap it up by talking about what we can do as the people who are watching these games, as the parents whose kids are participating, is there anything we can do if we see something like this happening? Well, I think sometimes it can be uncomfortable to call out that kind of behavior, especially if it's another parent. You live in a community with a club soccer team or a little league baseball team or whatever the sport might be, even a gymnastics event or something else. But if there's another parent who's kind of out of control, maybe you don't have to call them out directly. But maybe you go to the coach, maybe you go to the head of that organization and you say, look, this is happening and I think it needs to be reined in. I think speak up 
is is the big thing. Is what I'm hearing from NASO, from the uh, Brian Barlow with offsides. It's speak up and say something. As a part of the story, we actually requested uh, from WIAA, the Wisconsin Interscholastic Athletic Association, reports they've received from referees when there's been some sort of an event that they felt was out of control, and they released to us for the first time. Uh, they released redacted versions of those reports. And you see some of this behavior. It's when someone finally steps up and calls it out that maybe it's addressed with the school or it's addressed with an organization. But far too often they said referees just don't report this. They just go home and either they try to brush it off and move on to the next thing or sometimes they just decide to hang up the whistle. So call it out, report it, say something about it. And and uh, at least from the experts that I've talked to, they say that's maybe the best way to, to rein this in and bring it under control. Well, that's the dinner bell, which means it's time for our dinner party question. This is a weekly segment where we answer questions we most often get asked as journalists at parties or events or when we're out and about. Here's the catch. We have no idea what the question is. There are several envelopes in front of us, and I'm going to pick one at random from the middle. Here we go. I wrote some of these. I wonder if some of them are mine. You should have great answers then, right? I know. I feel like mine should be the best, but let's see. Have you missed a deadline or almost missed a deadline? That is one of my questions. (laughs) Do you want to go first since you've had time to think about it? Uh, I will say that in this business, one of the worst things you can do to your team is miss your deadline. It's actually a very big deal if you miss slot is what they call it. And we all understand that there are these breaking news situations where things are happening very, very quickly. But that is one of the top priorities you have as the photojournalist and photographer in the the field is to get your, your video back in time. And sometimes it's coming back within a minute of you going on air and the producers in your ear telling you, 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 your video's not here yet. You might not have your video. You might have to ad lib it. And it's very stressful sometimes, but missing deadline or missing your slot is a very big deal. But have you, that was the question. Uh, I am trying to think, I maybe know we've had technical issues before. It's, yeah, that's yeah, what I was wondering. Yeah, it seemed like yeah. maybe she kind of like addressed the question without really I know. <laughs> I think I have a couple times, but it wasn't my fault. Um, it never is. Say. We always get to blame right. the reporter but or, the was, editor, or a, photographer or the editor. It, right? I mean, you, you have to sit down and talk to your producers about what happened, and you have to talk to the, the manager and explain what happened. And sometimes it's a technical issue. Maybe your photographer's computer stopped working, or you couldn't get a signal from the live truck, and you couldn't feed it back. But I've had it happen once or twice, and thankfully, it wasn't something that I got written up for. But it was it was a it was a big deal for everybody, and you have to rearrange the rundown of the show and push other people up. Um, and sometimes you just have to go on air anyway if your video didn't get sent back or your interviews didn't get sent back, and that's something you just have to deal with on the fly. When I was a cub reporter back in Des Moines, Iowa, and I say cub because it was like 20 years ago. Was this during um, your trench coat phase? It was the trench coat okay. time. It was. Yeah, I was, I was, I was Give transitioning out of the trench coat, <laughs> but I was still, it still made appearances. Um, I was in Des Moines and I still remember it. You guys won't be surprised by this if you know me. I was more concerned about being sort of a perfectionist with what I was putting in the story or how I was writing it. No. Not so worried about how quickly I was doing it. And so I was 
often the one, and so I can't blame the photographer on this. I was one sometimes who would push the deadline in terms of how much time I was giving the editor to do what I was trying to do with the story. Because what happens in the field with general assignment reporting, as you guys well know, but for listeners, is you're gathering all this material and and the video and the sound, and then it's on the reporter to craft the script. And the editor or photographer who's going to be editing is waiting. And they're waiting for you to get that done. Now, now they might be cutting other video that needs to be sent back in the meantime. But uh, back in the olden days, I had you, you didn't have uh, – you had one tape. And so if I'm working with that tape and looking at my video, the photographer is just waiting. And I still remember this uh, very vividly. I had a story that I was trying to be extra creative with where we had interviewed – three or four people at a crime scene. And I wanted to sort of chop up and intersperse what they were telling me because they all told their own view of the same thing they had witnessed. And I think it was a fire. Um, And so I wanted to cut back and forth quickly between all of them. And I had written it in a way where there were going to be a lot of edits. It was a complicated write, complicated edit. And by the time I got done, I handed it to the photographer and we had 45 minutes to air. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty complicated script. And it was probably closer to a minute 45 or two minutes when a normal daily news story should be a minute 10, a minute 50. It was a nightmare. Does that photographer had, like so, have a picture? Does that photographer have a picture of your face that he Well, just wait till you hear where the story goes because it gets better. So I hand him this script and he says – He's now looking stressed because I've handed him a nearly impossible job. And sure enough, we missed slot. And he got the story done. It wasn't quite the way – at a certain point, he had to cut back on the number of edits I wanted to do. We got it done, but we missed slot. They floated. That's when you have to move the story down and they had to move other things up. And I was a lead story, by the way. So this was the big Mm -hmm. fire of the day or whatever it was. And I got bumped down. And so after the story was over, we got back to the to the newsroom and uh, and the news director called me into his office and he he had first called the photographer in and then he called me in and I thought, I'm about to get it. And he sat me down and he said, now, Brian, I want you to know and I can't remember the photographer's name. So I'm going to say John. It's a made up name. If I ever worked with a John, <laughs> this wasn't you. Um, he, he called me and he sat me down and he said, I want you to know that. John's been let go. And I'm calling you in because I need you to know that it has nothing to do with your story today. I'm not happy about your story today. We're going to talk about that separately. I just needed you to know they're not connected. For the moment between those two things, I felt worse than I've ever felt in my life. I thought, I got this guy fired. And it turns out there were some other things that had happened. This had nothing to do with it. It was just really poor timing. But I still sort of, even as I tell the story, I still sort of you feel this feel weight bad. of guilt. Like maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so from then on, I ne- I've never again wow, this missed slot. started very lighthearted. And just <laughs> I told you it was going to go took somewhere. A downward turn it was worthwhile. Very, very quickly. So what you're saying is your producer also hates you. <laughs> well, the producer didn't get fired. Oh, but the producer, producer from that oh, no, for, the, for that show, absolutely. No, I, yeah. I felt terribly responsible. Yeah. I never missed slot again. In my career, I've never missed slot. 
Um, that doesn't mean now, now we don't really have the same thing with investigations and things. Our deadlines where are more fluid. We still have deadlines and I've missed some of those deadlines, but usually for good reason, hopefully. Um, and usually we know a few days out. We, yeah, we have advanced. No, it's not like the story's not going to make it on by the day it's supposed to air. It's just other I feel like we it. should have executive producer Leanne on to answer this question no, for she's us just because she can give a much more um, honest and accurate assessment right. for all of us about whether we miss deadlines. So with special projects, you know, you you have deadlines you're going to meet, but it's not like when you do general assignment reporting where it's for that day typically. So it's not, like you said, it's not so much missing slot, but we do have stories that get pushed back. And sometimes it's because we find out, oh, this isn't the story we thought it was. We need to give it more time. And it's for the sake of fairness. Sometimes it's to iron out a few more things. Sometimes it's, oh, well, if we wait on this one element, it's going to get better. And sometimes it's just, hey, we got to scrap it. And that's happened before and it's not fun, but that's the reality of this. General assignment reporting, my second week of my first job, I missed a lot. I was running a one-man band bureau in Toledo, Ohio. So, you know, doing all my own camera work, editing. I was running my own live shot, doing two stories a day. And it was really my first day truly solo. And I missed a lot. And I'm pretty sure I cried myself to sleep that night. I thought I was going to get fired. It was like the worst thing in the world. And my news director called me in his office and he said, going forward, like, I'm going to be a lot harder on you if you miss a lot. But it's your second. Like, he was very gracious about it, made it known that it was, don't take it lightly if you miss it, but you get you get a mulligan. You just started. So that was good. After that... I became, um, I was, if I do say so myself, pretty good with time management. I think just running a bureau makes you that way because there are so many different things you're juggling and you have to stay organized and you have to accept that nothing's going to be perfect, which was really frustrating for me and why I eventually transitioned into special projects and investigative reporting. Um, I can't think of a specific time after that. I'm sure that there have been times where we've cut it close and it was my fault for taking too long to write or, you know, having an overly complicated edit for what it was. So I don't know, maybe you'll get a more accurate answer if you call up the photographers I've worked with in What's the past. What's always amazed me is as a viewer, I've never noticed that there was an, a, a show where you could watch, I mean, sometimes if you really know the business, you go, I, I'll bet somebody missed slot there. Right, right. But most of the time, I just think producers and anchors are such professionals that they just juggle the mess and make it look like, oh, that's what we meant to do. But if you're ever watching the news, and, and it's not always true, but sometimes if suddenly they're leading with a with a weather story, or they're just talking about the weather, unless there's actually weather imminent day. weather. Yeah, you think you know, I'll bet somebody, I'll bet somebody missed slot there. But oftentimes, it's handled so expertly that as a viewer at home, you wouldn't know anything was wrong. And I've seen that where there's been a newscast I've watched that seemed fine, and I get to work, and everybody's like, "Did you see the six last night? What a mess!" And I had no idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've been because at one point I was a producer slash reporter. So it was my job to put the show together and rearrange the rundown when people miss slots. So that was a whole different experience of being the one who had to manage that and to try and make it work with everyone else on the team. So it looked seamless. So no one at home would notice. It's a lot of stress. My first time fill in anchoring here 
we had someone miss slot and then the rest of the first block got rearranged and it was my first time doing it. So I was very, I was very aware of what you camera were I needed to be looking at. I'd kind of, I'd be looking at, I'd be, I was concentrating very hard on when I needed to move to this side of the studio and I had everything in my mind and I was sweating so much during that A block just because I didn't want people to know that things were moving around and I was really nervous and you couldn't really tell when you watched it back, but my heart was beating so much. I was already nervous because I'd never filled in anchoring before, but to have everything move around was, whew, that was a bit scary. Yeah, it's stressful I, for everyone involved. It makes me think about the movie Broadcast News when they're running down the In hallway. In the beginning with, with the, the tape, tape. Trying to get the tape there. And we don't quite have that same thing because you don't have the physical tapes anymore. But you still – now we have where whole systems will go down and you've lost everything. Every and single just, clip for your And you're just chef. trying to you know tread water. So I, I've always found any uh, anchor, producer who can get through those times, I just – I think that is the – that's like the part of TV news that I just find so fascinating and I think is amazing that maybe viewers at home would never have any idea. That's pressure. Right. Mm-hmm. We're always on. If the video is not working in the system, the anchors are still going to be sitting there talking from 9 until 1030 every night, regardless of what they have to work with. And sometimes that's happened, thankfully, not in a long time. Let's knock on some wood here. But it hasn't happened in a while. And that's when they earn their money. TV magic. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Open Record. We would also like to thank the people behind the scenes making this podcast happen. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and Leanne Watson. If you enjoy listening, let us know. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to check out Fox 6's other podcast, Definitely Milwaukee, DFF, Definitely Milwaukee with Carl Deffenbaugh. If you want more Open Record, just head to our website, fox6now.com. Tribune Audio Network.